I am sure that many of you are familiar with les mes. I'm not going to say that rest of that word because I'm not French and I don't know how to do it. But I'll say les mes, all right? I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with Les Mis. Um, it's considered one of the greatest novels ever written, and it is big. We have a copy at home, and it's a paperweight. It's big. It's a big book. And because of the size of it, I'm sure more of us are more familiar with the musical and the movie than we are the book. You know what I mean? And so Victor Hugo is the author. Victor Hugo, it took him 20 years to write this book. Um, he published it in 1862, and it's set in French history, from around 1800, 1815 to 1832. Now, talk to me. Remember, you're supposed to talk to me at times. And I'll, give, me, give me the main characters. Jean Valjean, very good. Talk to me some more. Who's the bad guy? Javert, thank you very much. You even said it with an accent. Who else? Cosette. Fantine. The good girl turns bad. Bad girl turns good. We kind of liked her. It was sad when she died. Eponine. All right. Who else? Anyone else? Marius. Who? I don't What? Who? Anne Hathaway. Amen. Yeah, that's great. Very good. They got that part. That's great. Very good. And so, you know, the musical premiered in 1985, and most of it, and that's where I first saw it. I just had tickets to a musical. I didn't know what I was seeing. I'm a country boy. And so... That musical, though, is played over 7,000 times. And so, this is the story of Les Mis. Let me just read to you a, a summary of it, all right? You're not, don't worry, I'm not pulling out the whole book. You're, you're safe, all right? We'll get out of here. This is the summary of Les Mis, and this is why it's important for us to know about it. The story is of Jean Valjean, a criminal who is convicted for stealing food, bread, to feed to his sister's children. He escapes, breaks parole. Depends on the book or the movie, one or the other. He's wearing threadbare trousers and a tattered jacket. He'd been in prison for 19 years. It left him rough and fearless. He walked for days in the alpine chill of the 19th century southeastern France, only to find that there was no inn that would take him, no tavern that would feed him. And finally, he knocks on the door of a bishop's house. The bishop is 75 years old, and like, Jean Val- and like Valjean, he has lost much. The revolution has taken his values from him, except for silverware, soup, ladle, and two candlesticks. Valjean tells him his story and expects the religious man to turn him away, but the bishop is kind and he asks the visitor to sit near the fire. You do not need to tell me who you are, he explains. This is my house. This is not my house. It is the house of Jesus Christ. And after some time, the bishop takes the ex-convict to the table, where he then dines on soup and bread, figs and cheese and wine, and using the bishop's fine silverware. He shows Valjean to a bedroom, and in spite of the comfort, the ex-prisoner can't sleep. In spite of the kindness of the bishop, he can't resist the temptation. He stuffs the silverware into his knapsack. The priest sleeps through the robbery, and Valjean returns into the night. But he doesn't get far. Policemen catch him, and they march him back to the bishop's house. And Valjean knows what, to ca- what, what his capture means, prison for the rest of his life. But then something wonderful happens. Before the officer can explain the crime, the bishop steps forward. There you are! I'm so glad to see you. I can't believe you forgot the candlesticks. They're made of pure silver as well. Please take them with the forks and the spoons that I gave you. 
Valjean is stunned. The bishop dismisses the policeman and then turns and says to Valjean, My brother, you are no longer belong to evil, but to good, and I have bought your soul for you. Valjean has a choice. Believe the priest or believe his past. And he believes the priest. He becomes the mayor of a small town. He builds a factory, gives jobs to the poor. He takes pity on a dying mother and raises her daughter. Grace changed him. Grace changed him. Getting not what he deserved, but what he didn't deserve. That's the introduction to what we're going to be studying for the next few weeks. In Galatians, we're going to be looking at how Paul's teaching about grace, how Paul's teaching about what the difference it is to live by law or by grace. We've talked about the various meanings in November. We talked about that. We, we did one Sunday where we just kind of touched on this topic. And, and so the word has lots of meanings, but we want to just summarize those. And so there's a lot of things we could summarize. We could go to there. So, for instance, you know, we say grace before meals. We're gratified by good news. Grateful for the kindness of others. Congratulated. That's the root word is in there. When successful. We leave a gratuity when we're pleased with the service we get. Or we're afraid of, of not leaving a gratuity. Um, royalty is, dis- is addressed as your grace. To pardon someone is an act of grace. Credit card companies sometimes extend a grace period. Um, When we are rescued at the last minute, we call it saving grace. Others can also fall from grace, be an ingrate or be a disgrace, and be persona non grata, an unwelcomed or unacceptable person. All these words and phrases have at the root of them the word grace. If you're looking for a biblical definition, technically the biblical definition looks like this. Coming from the word Cairo, it means graciousness as gratifying, of manner or act, abstract or concrete, either one, literal, figurative, or spiritual, but especially the divine influence of the heart and its reflection in in the life, including gratitude. Acceptable, benefit, favor, gift, gracious, grace, joy, liberality, pleasure, thank, thanks, and thankworthy. All of those things can come from that root word there of Cairo. But let's see how else it's been defined. Let's see how others have written about it. J. Hampton Keithley says, Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God to the favor or kindness given to those who can never deserve it or earn it by anything they can do or refrain from doing. So it's not just what favor you get from what you do, but it's favor when you deserve it because you can't stop. You see that last part? I like that he included that. It's the the kindness given to those who can never deserve it or earn it by stopping what they're doing. By stopping what they're doing. Charles Swindoll says, Every time the thought of grace appears, there's the idea of being undeserved. In no way is the recipient getting what he or she deserves. Favor is being extended simply out of the goodness of the heart of the giver. And this goes right back to that series we did years ago now, where Andy Stanley challenged us to think about it. And he said, he said, when you see grace like this, is it emphasizing? Do you think about the giver? Or the getter or the giver? Who does it say more about? Grace says more about the giver 
than it does the getter, the recipient. Charles Ryrie says, the lavish gift of God in the person of his son is the particularly New Testament meaning of grace. The lavish gift of God in the person of his son. Grace defines reason and logic. Here, this is just to keep um, on my young crowd. Y'all pay attention. I'm talking about someone you know. Maybe. I don't know if he's even still hip anymore or not. Bono, in his book on Bono. I can't repeat everything he said in here because he says it differently than the way we talk in Sunday morning church. But he says, it is mind-blowing concept that God who created the universe might be looking for company. A real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out there comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, the physical laws. Every action is met by an equal or opposite reaction. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it, he says. But then along comes the idea called grace to upend it all. As you reap, you will sow, sow. That's all done, he says. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts. And if you like the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good, deed, very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be fi- my final judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. David Siemens, a Christian counselor, says this. He says, the failure to understand and receive... Let me read the whole quote. That's the only part of it. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians... Right now, he's just talking about Christians. Is the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. Another guy said it like this, the principle of grace is as fundamental to Christianity as justice is to law or as love is to marriage. Christianity cannot be understood apart from an adequate grasp of grace. Reason and logic, that's from the last slide I got left on there, just ignore that, all right? Griffith Thomas said, what do we mean by grace? It's a large word. It's a great word, an all-inclusive word, perhaps the greatest word in the Bible because it is the word most truly expressive of God's character and attitude in relationship to men. He goes on and says, grace means far more, far more than we can put into words because it means nothing less than the infinite character of God himself than the infinite character of God himself. He's saying, and what he's saying is that, is that the story of grace, the story of the Bible, is God leaning, reaching, making a way for men and women and children who have no interest in him at all to have a, a relationship with himself. It is the leaning out, is him giving to those who don't deserve, who didn't ask, who didn't reach out to him. It is him extending himself, grace. And that's what he means when he says, it is the infinite character of God himself, God extending himself on the behalf of those who don't deserve. Now, in scripture, I mean, we're not even going to begin to touch on all of these, but they're here, we just I want to refer to them because, they're, because it's, 
For instance, in the New Testament uses, 2 Corinthians, it says, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, think about everything we've tried to define this word, this word that is so big, as they say, and then look at the way it's used in the New Testament and begin to wrap your head around it. Paul says, you know, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Romans 3 says that it speaks of God's gracious kindness. Acts 6 says that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. Ephesians 2 says that by grace we are saved. Romans 6 talks about that we are free by grace. John 1 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Acts 4 says that the apostles had abundant grace upon them all. And then Galatians opens the greeting, grace to you, and he closes it with, may the grace of our Lord be with you. And if you walk through all those examples, what you begin to see is that God, my grace is sufficient for you. What is he saying there? Is he saying, my favor is sufficient for you? He's saying that I've extended myself to you. That's sufficient for you? In all these ways, it is, it is a lot. And I think that Seaman's statement, and I'm not a counselor, but I think that Seaman's statement has a lot of truth to it in the sense that he just says, we read, we hear, and we talk a good theology of grace but we don't live it out very well. And in that, that's why I do think that so many people are disillusioned with the church, with our church, with the Bible, with Jesus. It's because they hear a message, but they don't understand how to use it. We talked about this back in the summer. We said, so, you know, many of us have tools, you know, and so and you have a tool, and, and you say, I would like to use my tool, and you try and use it, and then you can't figure out how to use it. And so you come to the conclusion, you say, This tool stinks. It doesn't do what they say it does. And they throw it in the trash. And then Harvey next door is a trash picker, like my family. And the trash picker says, I see a tool out there. And he goes out there and he pulls it out and goes, this is in perfectly good shape. And he knows how to use the tool. And it works perfectly for him. What's the difference between Harvey and his neighbor? The tool wasn't at fault. The user was. I think the world is full of people who says, that church stuff didn't work for me. That Bible didn't work for me. They say, those people aren't who they say they are. And I think it comes back to grace. We talk about grace but it's so difficult to receive it. It's so difficult to give it. Last night, one of the young men who were here from the house of Adonai, from the halfway house, was the young man that I had this conversation with, I shared it with you a while back, where he was first hearing about grace for the first time. And so sitting around our circle just talking about it, he's getting up and walking around the room like going, that can't be true. That's just too easy. That I would get without giving back, that I would get without earning, that I would get without doing anything for it, I just don't believe it. And the next week I came back, and he met me in the alley. I said, so what's up, man? I got it. I understood it. I talked to one of the other guys. He says, yeah, the next day, we kept talking. And he finally just says, all right, this has to be the truth. Gave his life to Christ. You saw him here last night. Eh, you didn't know who he was, but he was a happy guy. Because he's understanding about it, grace. He's grasping it. It's meaning something to him. 
So, so the story of Jean Valjean is a story. He didn't really exist. The story is, is cobbled together of many stories that Victor Hugo is familiar with. And he made them all into characters and all. And yet, I don't think that his story is completely unheard of of being changed by grace, because we see it in the stories of people. We see it in the stories of someone like, for instance, John Newton. That's one that we know. We, you know, there's been a lot written about him and, and talked about him. Once a slave trader, you know, but then he began to study the Bible. And the more he began to study the Bible, the more he continued to understand that selling and trading human beings as mere commodities was against what God was about. And that he needed grace. And that he was a recipient of it. That he was getting something he didn't deserve. That he was coming to the understanding that uh, what he was doing to other human beings was so despicable. Was so just unthinkable. And that God loved him anyway. And God extended himself in the form of Christ who paid for his penalties so he wouldn't have to. And he knew his penalties. He knew the depth of them. He knew the blackness of them. The ugliness of his penalties. And to think that someone would step into his world and pay for them? And then thus, somewhere out of the depths of coming to grips with that grace came that song that we all know that saved a wretch like me. And the word wretch doesn't begin to unpack everything that he understood about who he was. And yet that song did explain to the best of his ability, and articulated for so many of us, the grace of God on a life that was undeserving. Another, another example of real life, not a Jean Valjean, not a, 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 a fictitious life, was Paul. We know the story of Paul. He, talks, he tells a story It's cobbled together throughout the New Testament, but you can piece it together. Here was a man raised in Tarsus. He was a citizen of Rome, as well as being a Jew. And he was a very well-educated Jew. He had studied in Jerusalem underneath Gamaliel, a foremost scholar of his day. I mean, I would venture to say he was the rising, he was a rising scholar. He was someone to take note with. He was someone to pay attention to. And so he saw this group of people, these followers of this dead man named Jesus, And he took it upon himself to persecute them and to eradicate them. And so we see him standing at the death of Stephen and holding the jackets, it says, holding the cloaks of those who stoned him. And in other words, he was giving permission. He was assisting. Let me help you. What you're doing is good. Let me hold your coats. Just keep after it, boys. Just keep after it. And so he was so so diligent about it that he went and got permission to go to other places and continue on that. And so there he is on that road and... He's met by the one who persecutes him. And he says, why do you persecute me? Think about it. Here is one who hated Jesus, who wanted to snuff him out, who wanted to have no one to believe in him. And if you believed in him, I will take your life. I will throw you into prison because you believe in Jesus. And now Jesus confronts him. And in our economy, it's then he deserves punishment. And in Jesus' economy, in God's economy, he got grace. Not what he deserved, not what he expected, but he got forgiveness. And it changed his life. 
And he became the Paul who explains that grace to us now. And so he understood what he'd been saved from. He understood what he had come from. And so in Galatians 5, which we'll be studying in a few weeks, he says, freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free. Stand then as free men, free people. Do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. He understood where he had come from, and he understood who brought him there, and what got him there was God's grace. It was Jesus. And so in these men's lives, and in so many other lives of men and women throughout the centuries, they did not deserve forgiveness or mercy, but they received the very thing that they could not give to others, favor without merit. They would be at the end of the list of those that we would think should receive grace. And yet here we are talking about them here today. Amazing changes that God's unmerited favor brought on their life. Could we add our names to that list of people who have seen grace turn their life around? When we have talked about the difference between reformed, not theologically, but reformed and transformed, remember we did that almost about a year ago for the first time, where we talked about reformed people are people who know about God, who know about church, who are even into him, but they're changed on the outside. And so instead of going to the bar and ordering a rolling rock, now they order root beer. And instead of saying curse words, they say golly gee, you know. And instead of staying in bed on Sunday mornings, they're showing up in church. All that stuff is stuff on the outside. They're reformed. Transformed people are different than that. Transformed people are sacrificial people. We talked about all these things, and that's the difference. Grace is the difference between those two things. One believes that they need to be acting better, and they have to do stuff to earn God's favor. The other one believes that God did everything, and they get God's favor because of what God did, and they can't add anything to that. The book of Galatians is a letter written to a group of Christians who at one time understood what it meant to be saved by grace, but didn't know what it meant to be to live by grace. And that's why I think that, that that's what Siemens is talking about. I'm sure that's what many counselors are talking about and thinking about, and, and, and I've struggled with myself, that we fail in this area. The Galatians thought that once they were saved, they had to continue to do things to earn God's favor. But that can't be further from the truth. That's why he says, as you were saved by grace, so live. That's why you hear people say that, you know, that the gospel is for all of life, not for getting saved, because the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins. Not just for the ones we committed and keep us out of heaven, but he died for those that we would always commit, that we would ever commit, that we've not committed yet. He died for those sins. And so that unmerited favor, that favor that he gives us, that, we, that brought us into the kingdom, that helped us cross that line here that we talk about, into salvation, that favor there, now we still have it. And we've talked about this before, just in tidbits, where we says, but some of us are so exhausted from trying to earn his favor still, of trying to do what he wants, of trying to be, make sure he's okay with us. On your bulletin cover, there's a quote. If you obey for 100 years, you're no more acceptable than when you first believed. Your acceptance is based on Christ's righteousness, not yours. 
Christ's righteousness. It's what he did. It's what he gave you. And these Galatians had come to a place where they had made this true faith. They had this faith that understood that they could not save themselves, but they felt like for them to remain saved, they had to keep doing. And Paul's writing a letter and says, you had it at one time, but what happened? Because now you're trying, you're working to remain saved. You're working to earn favor. And you don't have to. You don't have to. Many of the authors who have written about this have said how an unpopular theology this is. Some of you are going to be fighting mad. That's what grace does. It separates people. There will be conflict and disagreement as we study this together. Because many of us are going to think that we shouldn't be forgiven. Many of us are going to think that there are some who should never get forgiven. And yet God's grace does that. If the most wicked person who ever walked the face of the earth trusted in Jesus on their deathbed, they'd be forgiven. But I know there's some of you here who don't believe that. So you can just imagine whoever your most wicked person is, you have your classifications, who they may be, and that they had never demonstrated any love, that had even been articulated, that had even been um, verbally abusive about their hate for Christ, but on their deathbed, if they came to a place where they could articulate, they just said, I understand now, I get it, just like my friend did, that all those sins would be paid for. All of them would be paid for. I've had people say, that can't be true. That can't be true. If you or I trusted Christ for 15 years or for 50 years, and then one day you begin to sleep around, one day you begin to take money, one, that wasn't yours, you begin to ignore the love and respect that your family members would do, you begin to hurt and malign others, you begin, you, and that was your beginning. You know what? If you did that for a week, you'd still be saved. If you did that for a month, you'd still be saved. If you did that for a year, you'd still be saved. If you did that for decades, you'd still be saved because no amount of your sinfulness can undo what God did in your life. No amount of your sinfulness can be so sinful, can outweigh God's grace. That's because God's grace is unmerited. That's because God's grace is not based on what you did or didn't do. It's based on what he did. Now then, I have sat with other pastors that says, you preach a cheap grace. He's a bold fellow. You preach a cheap grace. I think I don't, I think I preach what Paul preached. I'm not very good at living it like Paul did, but I preach what Paul's preaching. And I think that when we talk about, well, you still are sinners and, and that you can live for 10 years like I just talked about, and still be saved, that's not cheap grace. That just magnifies the value of that grace. That just magnifies the value of that grace. That it can endure our sinfulness. You can't out-sin him. You can't outdo his forgiveness. His grace is bigger than all that. There are some of us in this room... that I think this quote applies to. 
Some are afraid that you've written too many checks on God's kindness account. And you drag regrets around like a broken bumper. And you huff and you puff more than you delight and rest. And most of all, if you wonder whether God can do something with the mess of your life, then God's grace is exactly what you need. God's grace is exactly what you need. For God made Christ, in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering of our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's great. The favor of God on those who could not earn it and would never deserve it. That's why he calls us to rest in him. That's why he says that then when Christ says, rest in me, when Christ says, my yoke is easy, you know, you're thinking about this, I've never seen a yoke that looked pretty easy. I've never, I don't understand that. When you think about resting, you're like going, what does it mean to rest? He means receive my grace. He means that he doesn't see all that stuff you've ever done. He doesn't see that brokenness and focus on it the way we do. He sees the blood of Christ that was shed for that brokenness. That's what he sees. It's called, he sees Christ's righteousness, not ours. And so he's saying, relax. You don't have to impress me. I'm not putting a yoke on you that means you have to act a certain way or do a certain thing. That's what my yoke is. My yoke is, you don't have to act that way for my pleasure. So here, who, who here needs that kind of grace? Who is tired of trying, striving, managing, working, impressing, pleasing, hiding? Galatians is going to teach us that we can stop all that. That you can stop all that. Because of God's grace. Because his favor is already on you. I'm looking forward to what I'll learn. And I'm hoping that you are too. And I'm hoping we learn it together. And I'm hoping it begins to change your life. I'm hoping that you begin to see that like the message is not about, you know, this is the most exciting thing that it's done for me, quite honestly. And I, I you know, so if you think I'm a bad pastor when I say this, eh, so be it, I already am. <laughs> You're just learning about it now. Um, uh, The message of the gospel is not that you're condemned and you're going to go to hell for your sins. The message of the gospel is that you're condemned and you should go to hell for your sins, but you don't have to because someone's paid your penalty. That's why the gospel is called good news. The good news is the gospel is is that someone's paid your penalty for you and you don't have to. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And I'm learning what that means in my own life. I'm learning that what it means when someone comes to me, they're sitting at my desk and they're going, this is what I've done. And I'm not saying the thing like, you sure need to change a lot. I'm saying the thing like, isn't that great? God's already forgiven you for that. Now, where do we need to start? It's changed the way I, I, I deal with people who come to our church and say, I need help. Now, here we go. Two weeks ago, right out there, a lot of you are looking at me like, going, oh, who's that guy? He needed help. He needed God's grace. I gave it to him. Not popular across the way. But you know why I did it? Because I'm not going, what would God do? What does God's grace look like in this situation? It looks like meeting his need where he's at, not what I think he deserves.
That was God's grace. I didn't know if I was doing the right thing, but I'm accountable to him someday for trying to figure out. So if he says, you know what? You didn't do my grace very well that time. And I'm going to say, I was doing what I thought you wanted me to do, Lord. And the integrity of my heart, I was following you the best way I knew how. I think he honors that more than he does when we step back and go, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. I won't do anything at all. How does that go from like a guy who shows up on our door on a Sunday morning to your kids in your home? To the spouse that you wake up with every day? To your parents? To your teachers? Not giving them what you think they deserve, but giving them what they don't deserve. That's where grace is meeting us. That's what grace is when we're trying to learn how to accept it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I come and I confess that I don't understand grace very well. That it is something that is just so far beyond my thinking. And yet, Father, I want to understand it. I want to know it. And I want it to be the hallmark of my life. I want to be like you. Lord, help us to grow together. Help us to make the mistakes of what it looks like to grow in grace. And help us to learn from our mistakes and learning what it means to grow in grace. Father, if there's anyone here today who is bearing the burden of mistakes of their past, of sins of their day, of this very day, help them to know that you forgive it and your grace covers it and that you love them more than they could ever imagine. And there's nothing they could do to change that. There's nothing that they could do that ever make you ashamed of them. You love us more than we can imagine. Oh Lord, help us to grow in that and to share it with one another and with those folks outside this building so that we, they really see Jesus in us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks folks for being here today. Look forward to seeing Have a great week. Enjoy the game today. Enjoy the fun. And we'll see you next Sunday morning, if not sooner. Have a great day.